0: Hey everybody welcome to the latest edition of volley i'm carolyn april and as always i'm looking for my good buddy seth robinson seth hey how are you doing i'm doing well yeah it's uh yeah it's in the 70s here today so and, it, and it's supposed to be for the next week so i think we've turned the corner on weather so that makes me happy we yeah. do some outdoor, yeah. outdoors stuff yeah uh, things are yeah. getting
1: back to normal which uh you and I were talking a little bit before this. Like sometimes <laughs> yeah. normal isn't so good. Like all of the end of the school year stuff is happening, and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this. I don't. I don't like this. I, uh, I liked it when it was quiet. Um, but eh, yeah, so be it.
0: Yeah, I don't have that so much. I mean, my daughter Grace, who is in college, she's uh, she's on a road trip. She went down to bring her her friend who goes to college in South Carolina in Charleston she flew down one way uh, the friend has a vehicle so uh, they're just and then they're going to road trip back for the next few days but beyond that my older daughter's working and so I don't really have that whole like end of the school year thing going on so I'm I I feel your pain though I've been through that a lot yeah.
1: two more weeks yep. two more weeks
0: yep. we we'll will be, be over with
1: yeah so, yeah we're looking forward to a yes. Yeah. Good conversation today. Uh, we we have two guests with us uh, who have written a new book called Conversations with Things. So we'd like to welcome Rebecca Evanhoe and Diana Diebel. Uh, Rebecca is um, the assistant professor at uh, Pratt Institute. And Diana is a design director at Grand Studio. Sorry, I was uh, having to pull up the, the notes there. But uh, in, in addition to writing the book, that's what they do in their normal life. Uh, I'm sure that uh, you're you're getting back to your normal lives too now that you've gotten the book written. I'm sure that that was a, a serious undertaking. So thanks to you two both for, for joining us on the podcast. We're really thrilled to have you here. Thanks,
2: thanks for having us. us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, it is Dival, ah. people it's okay it happens all the time it is it wrong every single guess that everybody makes is like oh you're just so close
1: <laughs> yeah i mean I, I asked beforehand and then i still got it wrong but thank you for correcting me uh, i'm <laughs> glad you glad you helped me get it right there so so th- to start off here this book is about um designing software that has natural language interface and how you were, were beginning to talk to these things but I kind of wanted to start at a higher level. It seems like user interface and user experience has become really, really important over the past, I don't know, how, how long would you say, five or 10 years? Um, it, it's become a really big focus area in software development. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on what you think has been driving that, uh, and, and generally speaking, you know how user experience and, and user interface are becoming more of a priority for organizations.
2: Um, yeah, I'll, I'll start that one, and then Rebecca, fill in. Um, so I would, knowing a ton of UX designers, I will um, I will say probably has been moving a little longer than that, um, maybe 20 years or so, um, only because I know people will probably scream at me if I don't say something along those lines. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know uh, people have definitely been fighting the good fight for, for at least that long, um, and I think you're right. You're right, Seth, that it's been starting to come to the forefront a little bit more in more recent years. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, just the general uh, daily adoption that we've had of various devices and softwares. We now have, um, it sounds so dated for me to even say this, but we now have software on our phones. Um, But like, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that wasn't a thing. So just the advent of having more accessible software more prevalent in our daily lives makes it part of people's lives and people have more of an expectation and because there are more softwares they're willing to toss something that doesn't work for them easily and through that demand user experience has come to the forefront as something that has to be built into your product if you want it to succeed in the market
3: yeah absolutely i completely agree with diana the user expectations are kind of raising the bar. And I think you know one of the initial observations that sort of gave birth to the field of UX was that if you don't consider the end user, um, then the technology tends to be built in a way that reflects how it's implemented or how a developer would think about using it when actually um, people in their everyday environments in their everyday lives um, have different priorities. And so UX is sort of the process of imagining um, everything from the user's perspective.
0: Yeah, I find that very fascinating, your point there. And it's very analogous to how companies sell technology in that today they really need to take into consideration how customers want to be sold to, to purchase, to buy, to interact. And it's very similar. Now, I'm not a software development expert at all, um, but I'm curious if you could it, it maybe uh, explain a little bit from a high level. Like, what are some of the um, uh, skill sets, things that you know, to describe UX and and what being in that business means, and what are some of the requirements for a successful developer there?
2: Yeah, I think uh, so. From A UX perspective, like that's a pretty broad umbrella um, that covers a lot, as I'm sure you and your listeners are probably familiar with. Um, But in general, the sort of big qualities that are looked for in a designer um, or somebody who's going to be doing some design, even if they're more on the development side, is to have a certain level of curiosity and uh, humility that the problem that you're solving might not actually be the right problem to solve in that way um, or at that time and um, an empathy for the the people for whom you're serving because at the end of the day like whatever we're building is meant to serve someone else if we were just building it for ourselves then it wouldn't go out to the market. <laughs> um, so those are sort of like kind of key character traits but then like Hard skills. It really depends on what kind of um, UX sort of funnel you're in. Um, if you're doing screen design and you're doing um, and you're doing what's considered like digital UX, you might be looking to have hard skills in things like wireframing or um, information architecture. If you are a visual designer in screen design or in multimodal design, then you're looking to obviously have some sort of like visual hierarchy knowledge and typography and the ability to understand the UX within the UI side of things so that it's not just making it look pretty but making it strategically work for the users that are that are going to do it and highlighting the right pieces of information. And then uh, on our conversation side, I'll let Rebecca fill in.
3: Yeah, I think um to you know absolutely curiosity humility um to what Diana's saying in general ux i would add i think the best designers are the ones who can really zoom back and forth between being really immersed in the details and taking a really high level view um so that i think is one of the key kind of kind of mental tricks that uh, that leads to success. And then specifically for conversation design, what's interesting is that people come to the field with all different kinds of skill sets. Some people are linguists, some people studied psychology, some people studied writing like Diana and I did. Um, and so the hard, a lot of hard skills lend themselves to the field, but I do think that being very interested in the particulars and the nuances of language is really essential to um, conversational interfaces because that's, you know, we're trying to, these technologies are trying to imitate people. And so knowing really intimately how people are trying to talk to each other and how language changes in response to that um, is, is kind of the main obsession that most of us have.
2: And there, I should just mention that there are also two other roles that sort of like slide in between all the different modalities um, and different focal points, which are UX researchers and UX strategists. Um, So those are the people who are either investigating like what is the problem and what are the sort of underlying behaviors that we need to solve for? And people that are thinking about, like Rebecca was talking about, that really high level bird's eye, how do we piece this all together so that this makes sense before we go and like build the tiny details?
0: Sounds yeah. like you have people that are like left brain and right brain. So it's got to be like an interesting search for the right workers to do this.
2: Yeah. I mean, especially if you're trying to make a team of one or two, that, <laughs> <laughs> that becomes a taller order than if you have the ability to hire just a bunch of individuals. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I think the the dive down into the, the the details of the natural language and and the things Rebecca that you were were saying kind of need to get added as you're considering this. I'm assuming that's part of what drove you to to write the book. You know, what else was there? You know, what really made you think this is the time that we want to you know write this about having conversations with things as everything's becoming more intelligent and. And as we're seeing a lot more applications, uh, both on the consumer side and the enterprise side of of people wanting to uh, talk to their computers as though they're a real person.
2: (laughs) You wanna take that one back? Yeah,
3: yeah, go ahead.
2: (laughs) Um, So for us, I think what we were reading, there's some really awesome books out there and they kind of cover different things. There's a lot of practical how to do Voice design or chat design. Um, what are the different like elements that you need to put together? And there are also some books that are slightly more holistic, but have been around for a while. And as anybody in the in the conversation interface, the world knows, things change like week to week. So even our book is probably outdated by now, even though it's only been out for like a month. Um, <laughs> And that's, that's just like the nature of the world. So we were looking at things and thinking like, okay, well, there are some great books, but a lot of stuff has happened since then, or they're really great books, but they cover like this piece of it. And we really wanna make sure people get the whole view of it. And the the main sort of driver was, there's a lot of how to do it, but not a lot of, should we do it? And that's really what we wanted to, help people get a good grounding in so they can start answering that question for themselves.
3: Yeah. And to that, I'd add, we both, I think Diana has been a conversation designer for 10 years. I've been a conversation designer for nine years. And so we started to see some patterns in like, what are misconceptions? What do people consistently leave out of their processes or leave out of their thinking? Um, So we, you know, had enough overlap in the opinions that we share that we were like, yeah, let's, let's see if we can get up on a soapbox for a little bit um and, and one of the big ones is like a lot of you know as a consultant i saw so many companies hiring a team of just developers um and i got called in to like kind of rescue a chat bot that was really bad chatbot because <laughs> it was it, no one on the team had thought about language at all they treated it like making an app or something ended up with a chatbot that in no way resembled human conversation um and so um, that missing element is I think the, one of the key targets of the book. Like here's how you keep people at the center because we do know a lot about human communication. There's like thousands of years of study that ha- has got
2: into that practice. So we wanted to definitely
3: bring that into into the field.
2: That's not to throw developers under the bus, not uh, <laughs> not trying to make them out to be uh, terrible people. They, I think um like certainly we can't do what we do without our development partners so this is just more of i think what um we've both seen is when if from the company standpoint it's an engineering question versus uh an experience question
0: how much feedback do you um elicit from the consumer the end customer to kind of get a sense of what they are looking for in this kind of interaction with what is essentially a computer. So I'm curious, because it would seem to me that that would be a great place to start.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You basically kind of want to get feedback from customers beginning, middle, end, and and post-launch. So um, some specific things that we do in conversation design, in addition to the usual, user interview, user research, market research, kind of figuring out what people need and what problems you're trying to solve. We also um, have different techniques for looking at how people use language when they describe those problems. Um, That's huge. So we pull a lot of information from like call transcripts, if if you're doing like a customer support situation or in user interviews, we pay careful attention to the, the words people are using, the phrases that they're using. Um, And then there's a ton of prototyping and testing that has to go into these products because um, you're both working on the usability and thinking about what the bot is going to say to people in response to different requests, but you're also gathering um, training data. So like tons of different examples of the kinds of variation that the system should expect. So um, conversation design is sort of notoriously requires um, lots of testing throughout from real
2: users. This is making me think of um, <laughs> this like really funny person that I follow on Instagram. Um, he has like a stream of videos as if TV, and uh, they do a lot of stuff in Spanish. And there's this um, series they've been doing on. Uh, fancy Spanish versus regular Spanish. And this is the kind of stuff that we're always looking for to make the conversation sound natural and contextual to that I've moment. But like,
0: I wondered about that because not everybody speaks at the same, everybody's got a different way of communicating. So how do you encapsulate that when you're trying to build something?
2: It is a lot of like, just thinking about what is the relationship that the user has with the bot Um, what is the intention of the relationship as well? Like, is it meant to be like quick transactional one-off the way that when you go into the grocery store, maybe you probably don't have a real deep relationship with the person who's checking you out. You're probably like just in and out with them. You might say a quick, like, hi, yeah, weather's nice, something like that and move on. But there isn't really a lot of like deep knowledge that you expect them to have on you and vice versa. Mm It's in and out. But if you go to the doctor, well, now you expect them to have a much deeper knowledge and um, context of who you are. And so there's, there's different languages. Obviously, like those are two different totally contexts in general. So different language would be used. But even just from a relational standpoint, there's different language that gets used there and different phrasings like you would use a much more clipped concise phrasing in the grocery store context where in the doctor if the doctor uses that kind of phrasing with you it starts to feel like they don't care and they're trying to rush you out so you would elongate that that phrasing so that it feels like they're not in a rush and they're willing to spend time with you
3: Hmm. and that i mean one of the big things one of the big challenges of the book was kind of what diana's talking about is like language and culture are really intertwined. And so our cultural differences have a tight relationship to like things like turn taking, right? Like I'm from Kansas where people you talk and then you stop talking and then the other person starts talking. Now I live in Brooklyn where people are, there's so much more overlap, right? And so um, those kinds of differences are, are very intimate and very instinctive to us and um, currently, you know, a lot of this talking technology, like they're not very good turn takers. They're a lot more paced out than than we're used to and stuff like that. So there's sort of layers of culture influencing our conversational behavior. And, you know, when we look at all that bots have to compete with, it's like pretty mind blowing.
1: I'm really interested by what you said earlier that a lot, one of the big drivers behind the book was not just how do you do this, but should you do it? Mm. Um, A couple of weeks ago on the podcast, our friend Dave Sobel was kind of mentioning that we're really getting into like Jurassic world territory here where like everyone's so fascinated with the fact that they can do these things that they're not asking, should we do these things? And I think all the conversation we've had up to this point Uh, If you stop and think about it, it really is starting to imply probably a much heavier investment than companies might expect when they're like, oh, let's just spin up a chat bot. So what goes into that? Should we do this thing? Or what what have you seen? You know, what did you write about in the book? You know, what are some of the big pieces that go into answering that question?
2: Rebecca, you want to go first? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean,
3: there's some... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like essentially, as we were writing this book, there were certain moments where we had to be like, okay, we're writing a book about how to be a conversation designer. Like the whole book can't be ethics, but um, that kind of thinking is so essential to us that it's not its not this esoteric abstract consideration. It's like a daily part of the work. So in the book um, for each chapter we put in sidebars and comments and content around like, for example, when you're designing a personality, there are ways to create it that could be sexist or racist or ableist. And there are things you can do and ways to test and ways to consult with people to avoid that, right? So like, that's not pretend. It's not something you just talk about at a conference. It's part of your decision-making as a designer. Um, So the personality considerations is a really big area. we talk a lot in process, like about how your process can be more inclusive and be more accessibility focused. Um, there are ways that you can write to be more accessible. So there's a lot of like concrete, here's how to do it in ways to be improved. In terms of um, how do you talk your company into not taking on a tab on this problematic? Um, I think that's a, a bit of a larger, Concern that um, we don't necessarily tackle in the book. But I know that a lot of our, um, in the book, there are kind of conversations on the page between
2: Diana and myself, and we tackle a lot of those questions in there. The other thing that I think um, gets sort of left out from the designer conversation, because it often happens in product teams and engineering teams, is the functionality. And a lot of times, what you are capable of doing from a functionality standpoint can be quite harmful. And so to avoid that, um, having your, your development and your product teams as much in the same process as your design teams, like design teams are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We're just given, I think, a little bit more leeway to, to poke holes in things in the ways that product teams and development teams aren't often given as much time to play with that kind of stuff. So giving them space to think about like, well, okay, if we do this, we're able to achieve X, but we might inadvertently create Y and it's kind of having those same sort of um uh darkest timeline exercises that, you know, we might do on the design team, but allowing product and engineering to be part of that or to have their own version of that so that it is, we're sort of like holistically thinking about what are all the different ways that we might be causing harm by doing this particular um, capability. And one that's a hot topic right now, I don't know if you've been following, is the Spotify uh, patent release where they can now listen to um, sort of define what emotion you're feeling by the way that your speech is going, which is like a technology that exists. And, you know, iffy on how good it is, but um, it's there and the intent is to apply it to create more customized playlists. And in theory, that's great, but also there's a lot of potential harm that could go that route. Like, are you... If somebody's feeling sad, are you going to play the bunch of sad playlists that then perpetuate that sadness? Are you, like, I mean, there's just, like, a lot of things that could potentially go wrong here. And if you don't have the support structure, like, I don't think they're putting a suicide hotline anywhere in this um, experience. So, I mean, like, you're sort of pushing people towards a cliff without giving them a rope to hang on. And... There's the, the flip side of the argument on that, by the way, just so that I'm not like presenting something one-sided, is that, well, if we aren't advancing the, um, the things that conversational interfaces can do, then what's the point of using them and people won't be excited to use them? To which Rebecca and I usually <laughs> say, do it right, and people will be excited to use it because it's actually done well. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, sorry, I so think <laughs> the
3: emotion, we, we have, we really pulled back but we do have a mini, a gentle diatribe in, in the part of the book where we discuss sentiment analysis because the first question is the technology is often wrong. Um, and so that's part of it. And if you presume that it's correct, it can't respond to that without context. So in the example that Diana gave, okay, sure. Let's say it's correct that I'm sad. Maybe I want to keep being sad. Maybe I'm like in the zone and I need to like, you know, play those tear songs and get it out. Or maybe I need to feel happy. Yeah. And the technology doesn't have enough context to even respond appropriately. So it's kind of like, just because you can do it doesn't mean it's actually useful to me.
0: That's fascinating. Because um, I was thinking the exact same thing. Sometimes if I'm sad, I don't want to hear sad music. No, thank you. I need something something to get me, you know, get me happy again. Um, So that's interesting to see how that's going to, um, I didn't really think about the nuances of that and how difficult that must be to program, you know, and, and, and figure out. So it's fascinating stuff. Seth, did you have anything else? I think that was a good end point.
1: Yeah, I think this has covered it pretty well. I mean, is there anything else that you two would really highlight that we haven't touched on yet? I'll give you the, give you the final word here.
0: I got one for you. Number one thing business owners should know about UX and design for conversation um, that you would recommend. Like the first step they need to they need to know about. I've I've got mine immediately. So
3: we're trying to make technology that's using language. And what makes language feel human is nuance. So if you are designing in a way where you're trying to reduce nuance um, or reduce complexity, then you're like literally moving away from the human part of it. So that's the main thing I want businesses to know. That's, that's the hill that I'm on right now.
0: Okay.
2: My hill is bring in someone who knows what they're doing. Because they're, to, to Rebecca's point, there's so much nuance. There's so much like going on that you can't even attempt to understand all of the details if it's your first time in it without having a guide. Like you wouldn't go climb a mountain without bringing a guide with you. So don't attempt to do this without bringing somebody in who understands all these sort of like pitfalls and can help you avoid at least some of them. Um, So you're ending up with something that's at least probably a lot more successful than if you had just put a bunch of FAQs into a chat bot, which we have seen time and time again.
1: Yeah, I think those are great. You know, especially thinking about business owners that have been in technology for a long time, I think this is a very different way of thinking about technology and it's a much more complex way of thinking about technology and and they might have a lot of technical skill but they still need uh expertise that they probably don't have in-house uh or or readily accessible to them. So, thank you to both for joining us. This was a fascinating conversation. I could go on for, you know, quite a while, but um yeah. We've accustomed our listeners to to nice short podcasts, so we'll we'll keep it at that. And uh, we have a discount code that Diane and Rebecca have graciously shared with us for anyone that wants to get their hands on this book and and learn a lot more. So we will include that discount code in the notes, you know, along with uh, some links. And again, it was a really great conversation, and uh, we hope to be in touch with you too more down the road. Thank, Thank you
3: sir. so much. Thank you. It's been
1: great. Thanks for having us. Thanks, everyone. Have a good one.